the last few weeks, we've been exploring the book of James, and uh, we're getting close to the end, uh, but we've entitled this series, The Biology of Faith. And the reason that's important is, is because what we see in James is some very practical instruction about how to live our faith in God. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He has a pastor's heart. He has a heart where he sees the wrongs that are happening in the world around him and how the people within his own congregation are oftentimes being oppressed. And he wants to give God's perspective to them and to us. And so as we explore these verses together for a few minutes, I want you to focus in on this one point. Because the point that he makes more than anything is that he wants to establish our hearts. Now, that word establish in English, what it really means is to find your balance, okay? To be able to find your your footing so you can stand firm throughout the injustice of life. In the first few verses here in chapter 5, he talks about the abuse of the wealthy. That's what the church in Jerusalem was experiencing in the first century. Those who were in power, those who were wealthy, were taking advantage of the poor. And many of the poor had become followers of Jesus Christ. They had put their trust in the Lord. And when they saw the difficulty, the injustice of the world, it caused them to be discouraged. So that's the setting that we're stepping into in these verses in Scripture. Now, your life, what you've experienced, may be different. Maybe the oppression, the injustice that you have experienced, at least lately, isn't so much from wealthy people or corporations or whatever it may be, but it may be the experience of other forms of injustice and discrimination, intention, and things that have been done against you. We have in our congregation those who have very much felt the injustice of being driven from their own homelands, from their churches, from their places of worship because of religious persecution. Whatever form of injustice we have before us, these verses are going to apply and help us to see how to live it. Let's begin with what he, he tells us here and, and explore the reasoning behind these verses. As we just heard, James begins with this instruction. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. What he's trying to do is get their attention. Now, the message of the world says you should applaud the rich. We want to be like the rich. We want to have wealth because then we'll have comfort, right? And so James is turning everything upside down. He says you need to look at things not as they are right at this moment, but in light of eternity. Because when you see it in eternity, you'll see that if wealth is what you are worshiping, if wealth is your God, if riches are what you serve, they are going to come to an abrupt and very difficult end. Listen to what he says. Your riches have rotted. They don't last. And your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
Now, James is not a subtle, nice guy preacher. You know, I tend to be a little more calm. I'm not quite fire and brimstone. James just puts it on the line and says, look, the abuse that you're doing, the way that you're using the resources God has entrusted to you is going to be evidence against you in the court of Jesus Christ. So you need to use those resources wisely. Look what he says. He says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. In other words, you're hoarding. You're storing up everything that you can get. You're like the uh, parable that Jesus gives about the, the rich man who tore down his barns and built more barns because he had so much stuff. It is a sad testimony that in countries and in places where there is much affluence, there is oftentimes much hoarding because wealth can become our God. You don't have to be rich to be there. In fact, oftentimes it is those simply pursuing the comfort and the strength and the resource of wealth or of riches who are the most trapped. They may not have that much, but that is where they're putting their confidence rather than in the Lord. He says, the evidence against you will be like, um, like, will eat your flesh like fire. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, he uses that title in there, the Lord of hosts, and it's really important because it is the Lord of the angelic armies. He's saying, you need to understand that God, who is in charge of everything and who has this incredible army of angelic beings, will one day set the record straight. He's calm to take a serious look at their own heart and life and how they're living it. Well, the first point that I believe we need to come away with is an understanding that earthly wealth is an illusion that will not last. Earthly wealth is an illusion that will not last. No matter how much we get, you don't take it with you. There's an old preacher saying, and many other people have used it, I've never seen a trailer behind a hearst. You know, they don't pack all your stuff there and take it to the graveside. When you die, you leave it all behind. So therefore, the accumulation, the pursuit of comfort and of wealth is only temporary. It's significant, I believe, that in all of our cultures, what we use to say value is made out of one of the least valuable things on the planet. Our money is made out of what? Paper. Now, it represents that there's a value behind it, that it's in this case, it is secured by the assurance of the Czech government. That's great and wonderful. But in and of itself, it's a picture of just how fleeting wealth and resources are. It's just paper. I want to invest my life in something that truly lasts, that which is eternal, that which God will give and what he's telling us here is there's a progression that happens when we um, fall for the illusion of wealth. It begins to control us. 
We begin to hoard things. Then we begin to um, take advantage of others because of this pursuit of more and more. Understand that one of the richest people in all the world, um, his name was Rockefeller, when he was asked how much is enough, his answer was very telling, and it was simply this, a little bit more. That's how elusive wealth and riches are. So we need to remember their temporary nature and that ultimately because it is a false God, when that's what we serve, it will lead us astray. Jesus put it this way, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, period, because you can only put your trust in one. If you're putting your trust in the resources, you're pulling your trust away from God. Now, this symbol of wealth is a picture also of abuse and injustice that applies for every form of difficulty we take, not just those who are poor, who are oppressed by um, the wealthy, by employers, or by, um, in this case, the landowners. It represents also a call for us. James, whenever you hear him writing, whether it's in Acts or it's here in James, um, he emphasizes our responsibility as representatives of Jesus Christ to care for the poor. It is something very dear to his heart. And I believe in part is because growing up, he saw the heart of his half-brother, Jesus Christ. He saw his love his work, his calling, that he was called to bring freedom to the captive, that he was called to bring the gospel, the good news to the poor. And he saw that this is an incredibly important part of our witness and of our responsibility as servants for the Lord. But we live in a world where there is filled with injustice. Just this week, we, we saw the terror attacks in Barcelona. And those are becoming far too common in Europe, where people are taking vehicles and plowing through crowds. And it's so easy when you, when you live here and you walk the, the crowded streets, and whether it's Old Town or Winchester Square or other places, you can see how it can happen so easily because there's evil in the world. And it's a reminder of how fragile our life is. It's easy to look at those things or the things that are personally happening to us and be discouraged. In fact, the Psalms in Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 highlight this, this point. Let me give you just a couple verses real quickly from Psalm 73. Asaph, who is an amazing, amazing songwriter and worship leader, says this in Psalm 73. He starts out with the, the truth that he knows. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He sees the injustice in the world and he says, man, it, it almost makes me give up. That's the setting we see 
that James is writing to in his church in Jerusalem. They'd almost given up because there was so much injustice. But Asaph discovered something that James is going to point us to as well. He says this in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It it just put even more weight on me. Until, until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, the Lord, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. He's saying, in order to understand the injustice I see now, I need to step out of the moment and see things in light of eternity. Or as James put it, I need to remember that the judge is at the door. Here's the truth that I want you to take home. I'm not going to unpack all the things that I wrote today. I'll give you most of it. Um, But I won't run too far over. James is calling us to establish our hearts in the midst of injustice, of uncertainty, of things that just are not fair. Because life isn't fair. It's broken. It's broken by sin. But what's his instruction? He says in verses 7 through 9, be patient, therefore. Because of this, because there is injustice in the world, because it's broken, because you are suffering, remember he begins his letter with count it all joy when you enter into various trials. And he's coming right back to that same theme. And this is why we can count it joy. But he's saying the same thing. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. We need to remember, in order to establish our hearts, we need to remember that Jesus Christ is coming back, and He is coming back soon. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You should also be patient. Establish your hearts. Find your footing. Get your balance, and here's how you do it. You remember that the coming of the Lord is at hand, and that should impact how we relate to one another. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In order for us to deal personally with the injustices that we experience and to deal with the ones that we see in our world that just magnify the brokenness, we need to remember that the judge is already at the door, that the courtroom itself is already open, that the evidence is already being accumulated and is seen by the Lord. That's what he's calling us to. He's wanting us to understand that nothing that happens escapes the Lord. Now, what we tend to ask is, but Lord, why don't you do something now? Especially when the suffering or the difficulty we're experiencing is very close at hand. When it impacts the life of someone that we love or it impacts our life personally. We become weary by the burden and we want the Lord to act. James is reminding us that we need to establish our hearts with two truths. And here's what I want you to hold on to more than anything else. In order for your faith to be secure and my faith to be secure, we have to balance our life on two truths. 
Number one, God is just. The judge is at the door. That's what James is telling us. Number two, God is love. God is generous. He's going to go on towards the end of this section, and he's saying that he is full of mercy and compassion. Those two truths, when kept in balance, will establish our hearts. Now, the reality is, it's like this balance scale that I have in front of us. When you get one of those two things out of balance, your life will be out of balance. If we have the holiness or justice of God on one side of the scale and the love of God on the other side of the scale, if we put everything in our understanding on just one side, we'll discover that our life and our belief about God is out of balance. If I put all of the emphasis just on the love of God, it leads to universalism. I just think everything's okay. It doesn't matter how I live. Jesus came and died for everybody. Everybody's eventually going to be saved. There's no punishment. There's no judgment. What difference does it make? God is love, but He is not only love. We need to remember the truth that it stays in balance. And here James is telling us that every time that someone oppresses someone else, in this case he talks specifically about the wealthy, that God measures on his scale every single one of those. He says you're laying up, you're storing up treasure for judgment. And what he means is God is adding up the account in their life with every abuse, every sin that they commit. And so it can seem like because God is patient at the moment and gracious and full of compassion that the scales of justice are out of balance. But there's another side of the scale because God is not only loving, God is also just. Now, if we put all of the emphasis of our understanding that God is just, we come away with a picture of God that God is somehow angry that he's always watching to see when we mess up. And seeing only the perspective that God is just, that God is holy, that God is righteous, tends to lead to legalism, where it's all about our behavior and that we could never, ever measure up. Trevor earlier, um, in commenting about the, the, that great song, Good, Good Father, mentioned um, you know, maybe you had a father who wasn't a good example. Sometimes we view God as, as a father that we can never measure up to because all we see is the justice of God and we don't see the love of God being put in balance. God is just. He will balance the scales. That is the promise that James makes. He says, ultimately, the judge is at the door. Justice will happen. Wrongs will be righted at the return of Jesus Christ. That is his promise that he gives to us. Well, how do we live with that in the meantime? How do we hold on to those truths? Well, I believe that we need to continually look at our life and look at our belief through the perspective of both of those truths. In fact, when you look at the Scripture especially in the, the letters that are written to the churches, 
What you see is whether it's Paul or James or Jude or Peter, they're continually rebalancing the scale because we have a tendency in our belief system, in our theology, to get God out of balance. We only focus on one aspect of his nature, of his attributes, and therefore we have a distorted view of God. And in order to correct that, we need to continually put weight on the other side of the scale so that we're beginning to see the balance of God, that he is both loving and just. When you hold on to those two things, you establish your heart. So what I want to challenge us to do as a church and as individuals, when you're wrestling with doubts, when you're wrestling with questions, ask the Lord to remind you of His love, to look for His love in the Scripture, and to remind you of His justice, because He is both. Here is the truth. Every one of us has fallen short. Every one of us is a sinner. We do not measure up to the holiness of God. That is why we are so desperately in need of a Savior. I can't be good enough. I can't even come close. Neither can you. And because God is perfectly just, He demands the right payment for sin. But he is not only just. He reminds us here, James does, the judge is at the door, but look at what he says later, towards the end of it. He talks about Job, and he says, um, verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast, who had their hearts established. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he's not just just. That didn't sound quite right. He's not only just, he is also loving, compassionate, full of mercy. We even sang about that in Almighty Ones, rejoicing in the mercy, how he loves to show his mercy. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. The love of God is poured out on us and for us. Because God prepared the way to pay the price that we could never pay. And I want to wrap this all up real quickly with a verse that I find to be the most, one of the most amazing passages of Scripture in, in all the Bible. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 85, verses 8 through 11. God is speaking here in a way that he wants to point us to ultimate truth. He says this, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. He's saying, this is my heart for you. I love you and I want your life to be filled with peace, with an assurance of my goodness. But then he puts some weight on the other side of the scale. He says, but let them not turn back to folly. God calls us to obedience because he is transforming us to make us like his son. And when I 
embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior, but do not serve him as my Lord and give him control of my life and instead serve riches or serve selfishness or whatever form of sin it is, my life is out of sync with my faith and with what God has called me to. So he says, don't turn back to folly. And then he gives this beautiful promise. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. He's saying, my heart is for you, and I provided a way. That way is my son, Jesus Christ. And then look what he says. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. What he's saying is the justice of God and the love of God are going to come together at one specific point. And at that point, it's going to change absolutely everything for the rest of eternity. One moment where the righteousness of God and the mercy of God not only meet, they embrace and they kiss each other. And it goes on to say that the way this happens is that a faithfulness springs up from the ground and a righteousness looks down from the sky. Do you know what that is? That's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That is the Son of God taking on flesh, being born in Bethlehem, the faithful one, Jesus Christ, who, became, who is fully God, becoming fully human, and his faithfulness, an absolutely perfect, sinless life, lived out for all of his days, and then he becomes the place where righteousness and peace come together. You see, faithfulness sprung up from the ground, but righteousness, the holiness of God, was in Jesus as well because he is both fully God and fully man. Now, where do those two things meet? Well, I want you to notice on my scale, if you look, when a scale, a balanced scale, is in perfect balance, what do you have in the middle? What is it? It's a cross. It is a cross. When the love of God and the holiness of God came into perfect balance when righteousness and peace met together and kissed. It was on the cross of Jesus Christ. Every injustice that we face in our lives was met at that moment on that cross. All of our sin. And he takes our sin when we confess it to him and, and give it to him. And he takes it and he erases it. He nails it to his cross, and the record is rubbed out. It's forgotten. God is both just and loving. And the way to establish our hearts is to hold on with both arms, with all our might, to both truths. If we let go of one, we will begin to doubt, we will begin to waver, we will get discouraged. But if he strengthens our grip so that we hold on to both at the same time, it will establish our hearts in faith. So much of what we see is a matter of perspective. We look at the injustices that happen in our world, think of the, the most horrible 
um, events you can imagine. For some, maybe that's the terrorism that we see in things like ISIS. For others, maybe it's the Holocaust. Maybe it's something more personal. When we look at that in the moment, sometimes it causes us to ask the question, God, are you really in control? Are you really there? And we can get discouraged. But it's a matter of perspective. You see, God does not just dwell in time. He exists in eternity. For him, the past, the present, and the future are now. That's why the scripture says, for the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day because he enters into what he has created, which we call time. From his perspective, he does bring justice. He does balance the scale. And the promise is at the return of Christ, all will be revealed. Everything that was secret, everything that was hidden will be revealed, will be brought into the light of his righteousness, and truth will be seen with all the evidence. It may seem at times like the Lord is slow, but he is not. He tells us this in Peter. Do not look, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason why God delays judgment is grace. And so when we see injustice in our world, we need to, yes, cry out to the Lord to act, but at the same time, praise the Lord for his grace. Because the truth is, I need his patience just as much as the person we might consider to be the most evil on the planet. And so do you. It was God's patience, his waiting, his tenderness, his mercy that brought me to repentance. And his patience is the same with you. He's waiting for you because he wants to show you his love. After our service, there'll be intercessors over here below the windows. If there's a need in your life, if there's a struggle that you have, if you're not sure what it means to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we want to invite you to come over there with one of our intercessors, ask questions, pray with them, have an opportunity for God to work in your heart and your life. If there's a need in your life, we'll do our best to walk alongside of you because this is a family and God is doing good and beautiful things. We've already seen the joy of the Lord, His presence here. And every one of you that wasn't there are wishing you were at camp today, aren't you? I, I was sad to miss two days. God has good things for you. And he wants to establish your hearts with the truth that he is loving, that he is good, and that he is just. Lord God, would you take your word and Lord, would you, through your Holy Spirit, would you 
Speak to our hearts where we need to be able to apply that truth. Change us. Change me, Lord. Cut through the unbelief, the doubt in my own heart. Show me where my view of you is out of balance, where I do not see your love accurately or I do not see your holiness as it truly is. For the two call us together to become like Jesus Christ, to be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit and by your incredible grace. Lord, do a work in us, we pray, for your name's sake. Thank you, Lord Jesus.